Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only podcast in compliance featuring the top roundtable of compliance commentators. It includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitor, and Sarah Haddon, the publisher of Corporate Compliance Insights, CCI. Today's episode is dedicated to the full 2019 evaluation of corporate compliance programs or the 2019 guidance, which was announced by Brian Minkowski last week at the ECI Impact 2019 conference. Jay Rosen discusses the original Minkowski memo as a precursor to the new 2019 guidance and how the Minkowski memo laid out a roadmap to avoid a monitor by using proactive assessments. Mike Volkoff tells us how the DOJ is using the state of compliance programs not only at the time of violation, but also at the time of conclusion to reward companies with lower penalties. Matt Kelly asks, or answers rather, the question, is there anything new? Does it mean anything different in practice? Or is this simply a way to wipe out one of the key legacies of Wei Chin? Sarah Haddon talks about transparency by the Department of Justice in releasing this information, why that's so critical for the compliance professional. Jonathan Armstrong compares and contrasts this information with that released by the Serious Fraud Office around the Bribery Act. A fascinating review of this most significant uh, compliance program document. I know you will enjoy it. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. We have the full gang here today. We have Matt Kelly, Mike Volkoff, Jay Rosen, Jonathan Armstrong, and our newest colleague, Sarah Haddon. So with that, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, We have the full gang. And our topic today is the 2019 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs Guidance Document released by the Department of Justice this week. So, Mike Volkoff, I wanted to see if we could start with you by asking, how is the department using the state of compliance, not only at the time at the uh, of settlement or at the end of enforcement action, but actually at the time of the violation, uh, to reward companies or punish them with lower or higher penalties? Well, good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, Tom, thanks. Uh, well, this was an, a very interesting uh, development, and uh, Tom and I actually happened to be at the ECI conference in uh, Dallas when Brian Benchkowski, uh, who I, wor- I know quite well and worked with for many years, uh, came and gave a speech about uh, the new corporate evaluation policy. And I think um, it, it's a really significant development, um, but I think it's worth putting this document in context uh, in relation to uh, the February 8th, 2017 document, which this supersedes, which was basically a list of approximately 110 questions in divided areas, uh, largely attributed to uh, work that had been done by Wei Chen, then the DC, the DOJ uh, Compliance Council. Uh, so this new document that came out was uh, a new version of that prior document. 
And I think it, uh, there are a lot of important points within it. And I'm not going to go through it all, obviously, because that's what we're here for. But I did want to make uh, one sort of general observation that I think was kind of the intent here uh, from the Justice Department. I, um, the document from February 2017 as a list of questions was somewhat um, guarded in, in, <clears throat> in its application. I think there wasn't it wasn't sort of brought through. Uh, and implemented through the usual channels within DOJ. Uh, I think there was uh, some political controversy uh, surrounding parts of Wei Chen's performance and her role at the uh, department. And so I think that this new document uh, was t uh, an attempt to sort of take what had been done and then build on it a little bit more. And by that, I, I think, first off, look, this document uh, includes a number of important affirmative con uh, comments, affirmative statements. Rather than asking questions, there are a lot of times where now they take what would have been the substance of the question and make it into an affirmative co uh, comment. Uh, and I think in that sense, it's a much better document. It also, in some areas, goes beyond what was sort of inferred or implicated by the 110 questions and uh, brings in some new questions or new areas for inquiry, particularly with regard to culture and more affirmative statements are made about, about culture, uh, the responsibility with regard to an ethics and compliance culture, and also uh, with regard to risk assessments and internal investigations. Those were the areas that I saw. But going now to the specific question that, that you were talking about, Tom, the guidance also, uh, I think, resolves an issue where there had been, I wouldn't say uncertainty, uh, but it does provide some clarification as to the examination of a company's uh, compliance program and what is the time frame that you look at it? When do you assess it? Do you assess it at the time of the existing violation? Do you assess under the remediation prong? Do you assess it at the time that you're about to indict or resolve a question or, or settle a case with a, a company? And I think the answer that came through here uh, because there have been some conflicting statements, one made in the FCPA guidance of 2012 uh, and in subsequent comments and speeches uh, by various officials as to how much credit you get for your existing compliance program. The sentencing guidelines seems to envision that you get credit for an existing compliance program, even though you may have suffered a violation. So here what happens is they clarified that basically you can get credit uh, for uh, your compliance program at both the time of the existing violation occurred and at the time that you're going to resolve your case where it's under the remediation prong that they look at in terms of the timely and appropriate remediation. So I think um, it's actually a, a good development in this sense, and they've obviously, uh, I will say within the department, there's a, there had been a little bit of a disagreement, one being the antitrust division had taken the position that your compliance program was by definition ineffective 
if you suffer, if you engaged in criminal cartel activity. Uh, that has been superseded by, I think, a more refined approach, which now is to say that you may have had an effective program and at the same time uh, suffered a violation, going back to the obvious point that no compliance program can prevent and detect every uh, potential criminal uh, wrongdoing or any misconduct that may occur within a uh, within a company. So that uh, that's the the that's a long answer to a short question. But I think uh, I'm, I also tried to sort of set the stage a little bit more for other observations that other folks may have. Mike, uh, the question I have for you is: Do you find this one more step in the continuum that we saw literally with the uh, 2012 FCPA? guidance from the DOJ and SEC through the 2016 pilot program, the release of the 2017 evaluation, and then the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy? This is absolutely, uh, and you and I have talked about this, Tom, about the sort of path to how we've gotten here through guidance, through speeches, and then through enforcement actions. Um, I will mention uh, one other uh, it definitely is. It's an advance. There's definitely an advancement here, particularly, I think, the, the, to me, although it's not like the most significant issue that everybody's going to point to, but from my vantage point, throwing in ethical culture and making that a more important uh, or an important issue uh, reflects the, the, the trend over the last year or two where there's been more and more focus on corporate culture and the value of an ethical culture. So I, I see this as another step, and, and I think we're going to continue uh, to see that. Where I didn't see a step forward, I actually saw a step back backwards, was I thought the merger and acquisition discussion was just pretty limited and not really thought through because it had not encapsulated or not captured all of the thinking that's been going around uh, in terms of successor liability uh, and some of the trends uh, past uh, the Halliburton uh, opinion letter of 2008. And we've discussed this before, uh, you and I, Tom, in terms of uh, how that policy has moved forward since 2010, 2011. Uh, and I felt like, uh, for some reason, I think whoever was drafting this, they got tired when they got to mergers and acquisitions. It reminds me of when I get to the end of a document and I just, you know, say, forget it. This looks good enough. Let's go. Uh, and I thought there they missed an opportunity to to update that in a significant way. Matt Kelly. Uh, well, I, I just had a comment that I wanted to call out there. Um, it is worth noting that when the original 2017 guidance came out in February of 2017, which think about what was going on with the presidential transition at that time, um, you know, Hui Chen is probably you know, the principal author of the original guidance. But once she did leave the department later that year, I got an interview with her very early on where she was quite candid with me that it was her impression that if it had not been for her boss in 2017, Andrew Weissman, who back then was running the fraud section, 
went on to become Bob Mueller's right-hand man at the special counsel's office. Uh, but she basically said if it wasn't for Andrew Weissman putting that guidance out on the Internet in February 2017, when the department was in total chaos, nobody had any idea what was going on. The Trump administration had no idea what to do. So it's almost like, oh, we got this. It is good. Put it out. Boom. Now we're done. Now you can't untake it down. It's on the Internet. Um, and from there, yes, this guidance did kind of take a life of its own. And you can see that because, really, the form of the original guidance looks more like just a bunch of questions. Somebody scribbled down that Hui Chen probably had to answer time and again. Um, so I like the new form of it, but we should just remember what the origins of the original were that brought us to the 2019 revisions. And you know, under slightly different circumstances, we might never have seen the original, and I don't know that we'd all be here talking about an updated version today. Jay, anything from you? Yeah, I just had a quick quick observation, Mike. When you were talking about taking a look at the um, code of conduct at all the different times when the violation is uh, occurs, when it's remediated, and then when it's settled, I think that really makes a very overt argument about continuous improvement. And in the document, they only refer to it once on page 14, but I think when you look at those three different snapshots of the compliance program, I, th I think that's what they're really getting at. And I take that as a positive. A absolutely. I mean, I totally agree. I think this was, uh, it's an absolute positive. It's a much more, and knowing the history from Matt um, is really important here because um, they basically took uh, a work in progress. And, it, and you're right, if it hadn't been for, for Andrew Weissman or whoever it was that pushed that out, um, because it didn't go through the normal channels, there's no doubt, because there are other components that would normally look at something and that, you know, this would have been subject to about 3,000 scrubs uh, having worked in the Justice Department, I can tell you that. So what she came out with in 2017 was fascinating and moved the ball in a big way. But here, I think, the, and I hate to use this word, but I think they institutionalized, uh, you know, what the work that had been, uh, that Wei, Wei Chen had been doing, had done. But also, I think it's been updated in many significant respects with the perspective of a lot of prosecutors. Um, I happen to believe that DOJ prosecutors uh, particularly in the FCPA section, are really pretty forward-thinking when it comes to compliance. Um, I don't think that Wei Chen was necessarily the person that taught them that, quote-unquote, and, and I think there was always a pushback as to whether or not they really needed a compliance counsel, uh, because a lot of the prosecutors feel that they have the expertise or have been through the ropes uh, enough to, to understand this issue. But, uh, you know, I think that's why they didn't refill her position. And, and but Benchkowski politically, I think, realized he had to have people come in and do training for new people. Um, there's some experienced people there who are very, very, uh, very sophisticated when it comes to uh, compliance programs. Trust me, they've seen a lot of root cause analysis and they've seen a lot of remediation and so they 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 know when what's real and what's what's not. Um, in in Wei Chen's defense, however, 
uh, you know, a bunch of DOJ prosecutors tend to be kind of confident people. And I think that, that she definitely brought a new and helpful perspective to the process. Um, and so no matter what, they can claim that she didn't contribute as much as she did. But I actually think that she she opened a lot of eyes in terms of her experience. So, Jay Rosen, I wanted to ask you about the 2019 guidance, also really in the context of the Benkowski memo, which came out in October of 2018 as a precursor to the new evaluation. One of the things that I know you and your colleagues at Affiliated Monitors have been talking about is that the Benkowski memo laid out a roadmap to avoid a monitor if someone's in an FCPA enforcement action by using proactive assessments. Do you see this 2019 evaluation document as either a a sister piece, a continuation, or is it even related to the Benkowski memo? Uh, I think that's a great question to ask Tom, and we'll we'll go back in the way way back machine and do a little history here. Um, the selection of monitors in the criminal division matters, which is now commonly known as the Benchkowski memo, was released on October 11th of 2018, uh, and of course it's by Brian Benchkowski, Assistant Attorney General for the Department of Justice Criminal Division. In scope, it goes far beyond simply monitor selection. Much of what the memo said was not new, but it was a more specific articulation and writing of an ongoing process that was already happening at DOJ. Uh, There were some additions to the process, which provide some direct guidance for the compliance practitioner. Moreover, it starts from the premise that a monitor is only going to be appointed in those situations where it's absolutely necessary. Using terminology that the criminal division should favor the imposition of a monitor only when there is a demonstrated need for the monitor and clear benefit to be derived from monitorship. The DOJ will also continue to consider of each candidate's background, education, training, professional experience, and in other words, all of the things that you would expect the DOJ to consider in the monitor selection process. The memo spells out very clearly that the DOJ can select from three candidates proposed by the company, or they can evaluate alternative candidates. This has also been standing practice. And there is also the establishment of a new selection process with a standing committee at the DOJ, rather than just the deputy attorney general to make the final decision based on the recommendation of prosecutors who will be the final about who will be the final monitor candidate? Um, as you said, Tom, my colleagues at Affiliated Monitors and I view this memo as an extremely positive force for not only corporate compliance programs but also for the compliance practitioner. We believe that this is part of the evolutionary scope of what the DOJ has been moving towards as far back as 2012 and the guidance as you and Mike discussed. We think that they're listening to companies which have been complaining about the cost and adverse impact of some cases of monitors. And that's important because there are some horrendous examples out there. Yet this process is uh, is being viewed as an evolution of thinking about the positive impacts that a monitor can make. The memo highlights the objective of creating a stronger ethics and compliance program 
and remediating controls as one of the considerations for whether a monitor is necessary or not. And as you presently said, Tom, the memo provides a roadmap for compliance practitioners to follow in terms of how to avoid having to get a monitor. So, Jay, uh, you talked about the DOJ evolution in its thought process and certainly the fact that it's listening. One of the comments I heard at the ECI conference is that many attendees viewed the 2019 guidance document as really uh, a truly a companion piece to the Benchkowski memo. Uh, do you see it as as a companion piece, particularly on the compliance side? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very good way to look at it. And I think several speech and, you know, over the last 18 months, the department has been talking about harmonizing all the different guidance. So I think with taking the Benchkowski memo at looking at how they currently deal with monitors and monitorships, and now taking this piece of the puzzle, which is the types of questions you need to ask to establish how effective your ethics and compliance program is. I, I think they go together quite well. And, you know, there's, we're still going to quibble about little things, but, um, you know, it can always be better. But I think in terms of uh, the transparency, DOJ is doing a good job with this. Okay. Sarah Haddon, the perspective you bring is as the publisher of Corporate Compliance Insights and really your professional background in journalism. So what I really wanted to ask you about is the transparency we see from the Department of Justice in this evaluation. You've heard now, uh, Mike, uh, go back to the 2012 guidance. Jay really focused on the Benkowski memo. But from where you sit and someone who has a, a very broad picture of this for uh, really broader than simply compliance, how do you see this sort of um, release of information for the Department of from the Department of Justice? Thanks, Tom. I'm I'm glad you asked me that. And I um I did look at it from a different perspective as I tend to do. And I just I wanted to start just with a, a brief anecdote. A few weeks ago, after work, I was sitting in my kitchen, sitting at the islands, drinking my wine and complaining to my husband about my workday. And here's the thing: I'm I'm self-employed, so if I have a bad day, it's usually my fault. And like any good spouse, Tommy is usually happy to point out exactly how something might be my fault. Spouses are very handy that way. But my work thing, the thing that was bugging me and the advice that he gave me that evening seemed to dovetail really well with your suggestion, Tom, that I talk about transparency and communication as it relates to, to providing guidance to compliance officers. And as we've noticed this week, it seems like some news analysts and Writers and pundits are doing some complaining, too, in print, maybe to their spouses, about what they see as a lack of clarity and detail in this latest evaluation. And one writer on J.D. Supra yesterday, for example, said executives and practitioners are being left to guess at how their programs might ultimately be evaluated. So, okay, guessing is bad, I suppose, if you're trying to allocate resources between various elements of an effective compliance program for your organization. But then again, there is that management advice that you hear and see on posters that says something like, don't tell your employees what to do, tell them what the goal is, and then get out of the way. And that's also valid, I think, in some applications. And maybe we see some aspects of that with the trend today towards employee codes of conduct that are so elegantly streamlined that you can fit them all on one page. 
But back to my work thing for a minute and what I learned from it and how I think it relates here. I had recently tried both of those management approaches, stating a goal with elegant simplicity and leaving one of my team members to guess and fill in the blanks. And then I pivoted and I provided excruciatingly detailed instructions. And that approach failed too. And I do know now that that failure was mine. Just briefly, I had recently shared a particular goal with my web developer and he immediately achieved the goal. But he took a shortcut route that ignored some important steps that I would describe as best practices in terms of what I needed to achieve, what we as a team needed to achieve on down the road with this project. So I made another run at it by micromanaging and providing step-by-step instructions. I talked with my hands and I made diagrams and checklists and screenshot videos and all of that failed too. My talented and resourceful developer continued to find better ways to reach my goal, more efficient ways, more creative ways, but not in ways that were going to work for this project over time in light of these other variables and challenges that really only I knew lay ahead. And here's where my helpful spouse comes in. He acknowledged that I, I stated the goal and I gave good instructions, but he suggested I take it one more step. He said, here's what you want to do. Number one, here's the goal. Number two, here are the steps. Number three, this is what success will look like. And that's kind of a weird sentence. I don't think people usually talk that way. I don't usually talk that way. His suggestion was that I use that tactic, that sentence, to bridge the gulf between a right brain person and a left brain person. But as I can now attest, having taken this for a test drive, saying that thing is actually very powerful. And I think it's powerful in any workplace situation that relates to guiding and teaching and tasking. And here is why. When you say, this is what success will look like, that invites you as the one giving the instructions to describe the the varied and complex and nuanced ways in which all of the moving parts that contribute to this goal are in turn related to other goals and beyond that to an overall system a system of moving parts that's impacted by leadership and by participants and certainly by risk and by outside forces. And when you as a listener hear your management saying, this is the goal, these are the steps, and this is what success will look like all along the way, I think it invites the listener into a level of mindfulness about their role. And it encourages them not to look, or it encourages them rather to look at a goal through a different lens and to weigh their actions, not against a checklist, but against that shared vision. And when that happens, I think that success starts to be viewed not as a particular outcome, but as a process. And furthermore, speaking from experience, it's really hard to finish a sentence that starts with, this is what success looks like, without conveying your personal commitment and general passion for the process. And when you do this like this, it feels like less like management, I think, and it looks more like leadership, less like tasking, and more like inspiring or inviting others to participate in that vision. And I do see this this week in the new evaluation. I think that leadership is telling us 
that this is the goal. These are the steps. Now go ask yourself, because you are leaders, what does a successful program look like? And then invite others in your organization to participate. And we've got that framework now here with these with these questions. So ask yourself as a leader, what did success look like in the past when we had problems? What does it look like right now? And what unique issues particular to us need to shape our vision of success for the future? And I think if we do this regularly, as we lead, as we inspire others to participate, the answers to those questions that we're looking for will become will become clearer. And that would mean, I think, that when we ask the Justice Department, but what does a successful program really look like? I think the only answer is, I don't know, but I'll know it when I see it. What kind of program should I have? I have the successful kind. What kind is that? Again, I don't know, but you'll know it when you see it. So, Sarah, do you think that the message you just articulated, and I'm going to way shorten it, but it's really around the process. Is that something your readers on CCI are really interested in? Oh, I'm glad you posed that particular question. Yeah, I am. And it's funny, when I talk to authors that are querying me about a you know one topic or another, I always say, please share something that's tactical. Please give our readers a roadmap and paint a picture of where they will be when that roadmap is followed. And maybe in that sentence right there, that's kind of what I'm saying to writers is paint a picture of what success will look like if you do these things. So Matt Kelly, uh, you um, look at things, I think, perhaps a little more broadly than simply in compliance, simply in ethics and compliance. You look at Mm -hmm. systems, you look at uh, ERM, uh, and a wider, even a wider variety of topics. So I guess I wanted to ask you, from that perspective, is there anything new here? And more importantly, does, uh, does it mean anything different in practice? And then having been the only person in this August group to have actually interviewed Wei Chen, do you think um, that this document wipes out her legacy or really builds on that legacy? Well, those are some really good questions. I think, you know, so let's take it one at a time. Is there anything new here in this 2019 guidance? I would say largely no, although it really does depend on who exactly is asking and who's using this new guidance. Um, Fundamentally, if you look through it, this new guidance from 2019 does not ask a compliance officer to do anything you should not already have been doing from the 2017 guidance, and nor really does it drop any requirements that you also should have been doing so far. So I think as uh, Mike originally said that there were 11 big categories of questions in the 2017 guidance. Uh, All 11 categories are still in the 2019 guidance in some place. They may have been rearranged and regrouped, that is true, uh, but they're all still there. And I think all of the exact questions, and there are more than a hundred from the original guidance, like they are all still here too. Sometimes the wording has been finessed just a bit, but I, to my, I haven't done a screen by screen comparison fully yet, but I haven't found any question that has disappeared. Um, On the other hand, there is definitely more stuff here. You know, we went from four pages to 18. There's a lot more narrative 
And one thing that Brian Benkowski did that I think is very helpful is added these three foundational questions. Is the program well-designed? Is it being applied earnestly and implemented effectively? And does the program actually work in practice? And they were pretty clear that no matter what the details or what the fact pattern or whatever you're in a mess with, with the Justice Department, like those are the three questions above all that they want to get a sense of. Um, So is that good that we have all this extra material? Yes. Um, Two questions do come to my mind, though, is that there are, in addition to the original 2017 questions, we now see uh, there are more questions on top of those, plus all this other narrative. Some of these new questions did strike me as somewhat elementary. As an example, in the section of um, internal reporting mechanisms, one of the new questions is, does your organization have a whistleblower hotline? I have to admit, it did not occur to me that that question would need to be asked because who in our line of work doesn't know that, of course, you need one if you're a large company, uh, whether that's under a sovereign's Oxley or some sort of government contracting law or some statutory requirement in the states. But like for any big company and for most people listening to this podcast who have been grappling with compliance, like, yeah, of course. So why was that question asked? Um, and that gets to what I do think is an interesting point. Clearly, Brian Benkowski said that they want to train more prosecutors on the fine art of running a compliance program and how you might evaluate whether it is running well. Um, so it, the guidance almost seems like it added more information that is more simple to help people who are less familiar with corporate compliance understand what things to ask and what to think about. Um, Number one, that would certainly fit newer prosecutors who may not have much experience in the world of business or investigating compliance programs. But the other thing is, so who else wouldn't know much about an an effective compliance program? Companies that don't have one, or specifically general counsels and other legal employees out there who have a weak program um, that maybe have never had a function before and they're not quite sure what to do. Well, geez, how would we get started? Now, if you're a senior ethics and compliance officer, you probably know that. But if you're at a mid-sized company and you've never really had a compliance function before, you're like, hmm, now you've got less breathing room to say, I didn't really know what to do. Because these, this guidance is pretty comprehensive. Of If you could build a program that looks like this, it's probably going to be effective and you'll probably get much nicer treatment. And now you can't avoid looking at that roadmap because now it's out there. Um, I do not believe that this being the Trump administration, we're going to see some great new wave of enforcement against corporate crime. Um, maybe, maybe not. I don't think that Brian Benskowski is a scofflaw and he's going to blow off white collar enforcement. But um, I do think that this gives the department more opportunity to tell more companies, you really had no excuse not to have a good program. We spelled it out in 18 pages. We put some really simple points in there and it's been out. Now, how did you mess this up? I could see that scenario being posed to new companies that might have not been exposed to this. So that, that is one question that I'll be curious to see in the next couple of years. Um, and I suppose that really gets back to Tom, your other question about, does this wipe out the legacy of I don't think it does, because there were ways that 
Brian Benkowski could have wiped out that legacy, and I don't think he would have wiped it away. I think he would have just let it wither away and never updated it at all. All the original material that Wei Chen wrote, it's still here. Um, what is going to change is how this guidance will be used by more prosecutors um, without the help of a compliance counsel in the department. Did they need it? Did they not? You know, we can debate that, but the fact is we don't have one. We're not going to have one. So prosecutors are going to need some sort of a roadmap, and now they have it, and it is still largely rooted in what Wei Chen did, which is also rooted in the 2012 FCPA guidance, which is rooted in the U.S. sentencing guidelines. So is this new? No. Is it more to help you understand? Is it an expansion? Yes, but this is not new per se. That would be my take on it. So, Matt, do you see this being used in a new or different way or just sort of supplementary or supplementarily or complementarily by the ERM community? Um, it could be. And, you know, it, that would largely depend on how a company structures its broader risk assurance functions. Um, you know, there are plenty of organizations, higher education, for example, hospitals also, where compliance and audit and risk are much more likely to be all integrated into one. If you are a forward-thinking operation with sufficient resources, and I know I have now just eliminated like 95% of all companies out there by saying that, but assuming you actually have the money and have your eyes fixed on the far horizon, you could use this to help you understand what are the some of the things my company must be able to do and must be able to demonstrate to achieve regulatory compliance and reduce my compliance risks? Um, and for a lot of people in those roles who maybe aren't lawyers, um, who are not exactly sure what would a prosecutor ask me, a corporate lawyer might have a better sense of it, but you know, an audit executive might not, a chief risk officer might not. This helps you with that. So I I love the fact that this guidance is out here. I think it's better than the original. Um, cynics out there might wonder how much muscle is the Trump administration really going to put into this. I don't know, but it's a good guidance document. So take the win, use it, and put it to good use because there are many other reasons to have good regulatory compliance and risk management aside from the fact that you'll have an easier time if there's an assistant, you know, an AUSA sitting across the table from you. So I think it's good that we have it out here. So Jonathan Armstrong, sitting back in the uh, offices of Cordery in London, uh, I guess a couple of questions come to mind for you. First of all, what what does a um, what do you make of all of this, and mm -hmm. how will it uh, play out with uh, your client base? But also, I'd also ask you to maybe consider the information that has been released by the Serious Fraud Office on compliance started with the adequate uh, six principles of adequate procedures. Then uh, David Green um, said that we are not the serious champagne office, and yeah. I don't need to tell you not to drink champagne. Um, and do we have a different approach now with a current SFO director, or is it uh, really too early to tell? Uh, I think it's the latter. I was uh, struck by some of Sarah's comments around what good looks like. And I think that's something that we've struggled with in the bribery context over here. And about 15 years ago, I wrote a book and we struggled how to describe this. And we settled on something that we called 
the good curry test. Now, I'm going to make myself slightly hungry because it's tea time over here. But, um, but what that was about is, as you may know, uh, statistically, the most popular dish in the UK is chicken tikka masala. And it's a dish that um, almost nobody of non-Asian uh, origin in the UK knows how to cook. But universally, everybody has an opinion on it. And so that's why we settled on almost translating Sarah's thoughts, really, into the good curry test, i.e. it's almost like an, uh, an after-the-event test. We don't know how to construct it, but we know afterwards whether we've achieved what we set out to or not. Uh, and I think that compliance programs have traditionally been like that. We know what bad looks like, but we don't actually know what good looks like. And so historically in the UK, it was against that perspective that we got the, um, the, uh, the, the Ministry of Justice's guidance in March 2011. And I sort of, I think I never get the opportunity ever to correct you, Tom. And so I'm afraid this is a, a first and last time. But, but it's important to remember that the guidance under the Act comes from the Ministry of Justice and not from the SFO. So it's, if you like, a political wish list of what, what politicians at the time wished the SFO would take into account when prosecuting or not. And that's important from a historical background in that at the time, the UK and in particular the Blair administration had been criticised for politicians telling prosecutors what to do. And at the time, the then director of the SFO prior to David Green was issuing guidance, but politicians wanted to give that extra steer, but give that steer as parliament rather than as the government, the governing party. So, uh, uh, so in many respects, the the uh, original guidance that we had in March 2011 was was revolutionary in in European terms, uh, and of course, subsequently there was a heavy influence uh, from the UK guidance in the DOJ guidance. And that's not coincidental, and it's not something that the UK should take all of the credit for, because, of course, the people who helped put together the UK guidance were on secondment from the US, one of whom, I think, was Lisa Rozeski, the now, uh, the now director of the SFO, I, I believe. So, so there has been this close connection between what the US and the UK have done. And I think that the new US guidance just, you know, continues that, um, that timeline, if you like. The other bit I think that's interesting, of course, is that just as we've struggled to identify what a good curry is, and people in the US have struggled to identify, I don't know what your cultural equivalent is, a good taco might be. Then, then in Sweden, they've struggled to work out what good meatballs are. And in France, they've uh, struggled to work out, you know, the truly perfect quiz uh, de or whatever the equivalent might be. So we've seen 
that the piece of work that the US and the UK have done has also influenced Swedish data protection legislation and also interest, influenced the way in which compliance programs are evaluated under Sapando in France. So I think it's welcome that we're getting guidance from prosecutors. That's probably more welcome than getting guidance from politicians in many respects, because in, 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 in some respects, we need people who are at the cutting edge of these prosecutions and are going to evaluate them in practice to judge things against their own marking sheet, if you like, rather than a marking sheet that's been imposed on them by, uh, by the politician rather than the regulator themselves. And the other area in which I think guidance like this is helpful, of course, is with the supply chain, with what we call under UK bribery act terms, associated persons. So it, no company is an island anymore. And we have to uh, have people help us down the chain to supply us with things that we sell and up the chain to help us to sell those things. And why benchmarking type activities like this are useful is it's always very helpful to tell your suppliers or your agents uh, or your resellers what you expect of them. But being able to say, we expect you to comply with the MOJ guidance uh, on Section 7 of the Bribery Act 2010, or we expect you to comply with MOJ guidance, or we expect you to comply with uh, you know, guidance in Sapander is really helpful to compliance officers as it helps set expectations right up and down the line. So I think in that context, any activities to be welcomed. So, Jonathan, I would I would uh, have to inform you that here in the United States, uh, we don't talk about um, how do you make uh, what does a good taco look like because our Supreme Court has given us the phrase we all use, which is, uh, I can't describe pornography, but I know it when I see it. So I guess that would translate uh, as well for you. The, uh, it's, it's just a sign of how much more clean living we are on this side of the Atlantic then, I guess. Well, I was going to say repressed, <laughs> but that's, that's uh, <laughs> another detail. Uh, does anyone have a question for Jonathan? Okay, well let's uh, let's move to uh, to rants slash shoutouts, and uh, I'm going to take uh, the first one here. So uh, please forgive me while I queue up the following. Yes, that was my tribute to Chewbacca. Peter Mayhew, the actor who played him, died yesterday. So uh, Chewie, you are a great part of the Star Wars uh, family. I'm sure you'll be in the final movie, and I want to shout out to Chewbacca because I don't think Han Solo could have done it without Chewbacca. So, Michael Volkoff, do you have a shout out and or a rant for us? Well, I I actually have a shout out on, and it's pretty obvious. I actually think um, DOJ's uh, guidance. I give Brian uh, credit. Uh, for moving the ball and advancing the ball. I also would point out that uh, we also have, at the same time, uh, new guidance from the Department of Treasury Office of Foreign uh, Asset Control, uh, which incorporates uh, a lot of the same elements 
which just came out as well. So I think um, at least across the government, we have at least two agencies now that are very committed uh, and publishing what I think is really good guidance. So uh, hats off to them. And Sagal Manlicher, who works at, uh, is the sort of deputy in charge of OFAC, who I've known and worked at DOJ as well with many years ago with Brian. Uh, I think the two of them have really uh, moved the compliance ball. And so shout out to both of them on that. Jay Rosen. Uh, I'm still trying to uh, get to 500. So uh, I, I don't want to shout out, but the Red Sox are, are starting to turn themselves around. But uh, 500 is the first place we need to go. And then we need to be going north of that. So I'm uh, cautiously optimistic and hoping to get over the hump. Sarah Haddon. Yeah, I guess I have a rant. Um, ECI on Tuesday was right down the road here in Dallas in my hometown. I was not able to go. You guys were in town and we weren't able to connect, but next time we will. I, I may not know always what success looks like. And Jonathan, no, I do not make a good curry. I make a hell of a pot roast. Hell of a pot roast. So if you ever make it to Texas, you can sit in my kitchen and we can complain about our jobs if we need to. Matt Kelly. Uh, uh, well, first, I feel like I should rant at Jay Rosen for now jinxing the Red Sox by saying <laughs> we've turned it around. I, I just want the Red Sox gods to know I didn't say that. That was Jay. And when, <laughs> when we end up at 350 in September, Jay, I'm, I'm going to hold you to that. Um, I'll buy no, you a actually, beer. <laughs> so I, I have a rant that uh, dovetails, I think, very nicely with what Mike Volkov just raved about with this new guidance. Now, I want to be clear. I am glad that this new guidance is out. But my rant is that, am I the only person around who remembers not one month ago, the Trump administration said it was cracking down on sub-regulatory guidance that does not go through the regular public comment and notice period. And now we get this document that says right on the front page in 40-point type, guidance. I don't recall that this went out for public comment because it did not. And my rant really is that we have this supposed fear in Washington, in the Trump administration, from the Republican Party about sub-regulatory guidance, the administrative state and the dark guidance uh, taking over and paralyzing companies, and we should knock it off. And unless it is some big formal pronouncement under the Administrative Procedures Act, where you put it out, it gets public comment, it gets revised. Unless you do that, it doesn't count. It's not guidance. That's what they say. That's what the Trump administration put out not one month ago. And Tom, you and I had a separate podcast on it. To be clear, I think what the Trump administration said was baloney. And here's the proof of it. Because when stuff matters and it needs to get out, we're going to put it out. And that's what Ryan Benkowski did. He used this artful little bureaucratic dodge that the Trump administration exempts internal procedural documents. So technically, since this new guidance is for prosecutors, it is an internal procedure document that does not need to be out for public review. However, if that is all true, but then Brian Benkowski is standing making a speech talking about how others should want to see this and understand just department thinking that smells like guidance to me 
And therefore, this dog and pony show that we have about sub-regulatory guidance being the worst thing since the Night King in the Game of Thrones, that's enough of that, people. We need to get over it when there's good guidance to put out there. Put it out. I'm glad that Brian Pinkowski did, but everybody else who gets their knickers in a twist over sub-regulatory guidance, like, guys, welcome to the real world. Brian Pinkowski was there. We're all here reading it, too. Let's move on. So, Jonathan Armstrong, are your knickers in a twist on anything? <laughs> uh, they are. They're twisting as we speak. So, I did have one rant, and I'm having to change mid-rant horse in midstream in that um, – Five minutes ago, the UK data protection regulator announced its first big GDPR case against who? I can do a simulated drum roll on my desk. The UK government. So they win the prize for being the first major uh, case. Uh, The UK government's just been ordered literally five minutes ago to delete five million tax records uh, because it failed to obtain the proper consent. And it's very much breaking news, but this seems to be about uh, a voice ID system that allowed people to be identified by voice recognition. And the regulator has decided that a system like that is um, uh, requires uh, full and informed consent under GDPR the campaigners who brought the complaint called it biometric ID by the back door. The uh, ICO has said it will publish its enforcement uh, notice next week, but the government has confirmed it has complied immediately and destroyed 5 million records that it had improperly obtained. So, shout out to UK government for being the first big breach of the law it helped enact. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we came in right at an hour. Great job by everyone. I look forward to our next time together. Thanks again. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have any questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. We're developing a mailbag episode, and I know... We would enjoy hearing from you if you have any questions for the gang. The next episode of Everything Compliance should go up in a couple of weeks, so I hope you'll join us again. Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance, is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.